0: Hey, guys, I want to welcome you to our first full-length feature conversation on the Gospel Business Strategies podcast. Really grateful that you're tuning in, and I want to tell you a little bit about our first guest, and his name is Andrew McGarity. Andrew has a B.A. in political science and a master's in international relations from University of Cape Town. He was an intern at the White House. He worked for Carl Rove. Then he worked at the White House full-time, first as site lead, and then as a protocol visits officer. And that was for the Department of State, and he would be in charge of the president's travel into foreign countries, as well as travel stateside from foreign dignitaries. And we get into that actually a little bit on the podcast. It's pretty fascinating. He's also the founder and CEO of Thrivest, which is an online learning platform for schools K through 12. Surprisingly, there wasn't a solution before Thrivest. And so he created Thrivest and then sold it to Ingram Content Group, where he is now the director of digital solutions. He is passionate about the gospel so much so that he's now leveraging the Thrivest platform for something called Click Gospel, which is helping churches spread the gospel through the internet, essentially, and also have online learning for churches. The reason I wanted to have Andrew on the podcast, and even as his first interview, was because Andrew is a very intelligent, smart, articulate guy, successful in business, and really loves the gospel. He's just a grounded, settled guy, and so we kind of dig into exactly what this podcast is about. Business, faith. We also get into politics, family, education, and a whole lot more. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Andrew McGarity. All right. So um, I think actually how I want to kick this off, Andrew, is I heard you hosted the Queen of England <laughs> at the Kentucky Derby. Oh. Well, we need to start there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what rumor was that? No. You know, some people's lives kind of are like a one long paragraph. Mine's like mm-hmm. chapters or even mm-hmm. different books. So professionally, like, yeah, I started my career in Washington when I got the opportunity to intern at the White House. So Mm -hmm. I interned for a fellow named Carl Rove. Um, So he was a political advisor to President Bush and later deputy chief of staff. So yeah, I cut my teeth as an intern at the White House. And um, they asked me to stay for the entire year. So I did. So that, in turn, led to some other interesting opportunities, including coordinating the Queen's visit uh, when she visited back in, I guess, 07 or 06. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a true story. Well,
0: <laughs> let's dive deep on the Queen's visit, Kentucky Derby. Tell us about that, and then I actually want to back up to your time as an intern and your other time at the White House. Sure.
1: So, so the Queen visited for a state visit. She's usually invited for an actual state visit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's various levels of visits and state visit is the highest offer to a foreign country. So the mm-hmm. queen came, I was at the time working for White House Protocol, mm. which that role coordinates head of state's visits to the United States. So the queen came, I was assigned to her visit and I had all the British visitors. Yeah. So I hung out with the queen for two and a half weeks. So the job was, you're the main U.S. liaison for that visit. Okay. So,
0: and you were that main
1: I was I was the visit. protocol officer for okay. that visit and was within arm's reach of her of every step so whatever helicopter she hopped on I hopped on whatever airplane she jumped on I hopped on and uh, played the role of just coordinating the visit so from A to Z, whether it's secret service protection, whether it's her security, whether it's her political staff, whether mm-hmm. it's the White House advocating for components of the visit, it all kind of revolved around that one person called her protocol officer mm, okay. And you're kind of like the hinge that made it all kind of come together. Okay. Yeah, so we did the Kentucky Derby with the Queen. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's, Jules, and all. (laughs) Wow.
0: So you're the one heading it up on this end, and you have a team that's working with someone heading it up on their end and working with their team. How does something like this even come to be?
1: Yeah, so it all starts with an invitation from the president to the, the head of state or head of government. Okay. And the visit starts with the protocol officer at the Foreign Visitors Embassy in Washington, so the British Embassy, for example, okay, and the protocol officer describes what the White House hopes to accomplish during the visit, and they obviously have their own objectives for the visit, and you kind of, that person who kind of fleshes it out together, so we were hoping for this component, we were hoping for that component, and it all gets fleshed out there, and the agenda gets published, they decide Mm -hmm. what they want to do in the country, in the U.S., and you facilitate every component, so we were in touch with every stage, every five-minute block of her schedule, had okay. obviously some component, and we were involved in every little block. So okay. you're at the center of all those conversations. Another good example is President Hu Jintao decides he needs to go to Seattle and visit Bill Gates. So hmm. we went to Bill Gates' house <laughs> and
0: wow. visited Bill
1: Gates' house, and we coordinated all the aspects of what that entails, what does it mean for the president to go, and what needs to happen in between to make that happen.
0: So that would have been one of their objectives. While they're here stateside, they mm-hmm. want to go see Bill Gates. Right. That would have not necessarily been one of our objectives going into it, mm-hmm. but it's one of the things they yep. would have asked so for. It was
1: a bit mutual. So okay. I think at the time Microsoft was doing a big push in China. So it was kind of a ceremonial piece. Okay. So
0: all, okay sure. In other
1: words, so all that work had been done before his visit mm-hmm. and then kind of like the ceremonial handshake because they accomplished – what Microsoft wanted to accomplish and what China wanted to accomplish together from a business perspective. It was kind of like, okay, now Bill Gates invites the president to his home to have like a, we did it
0: kind of thing. Um, But all
1: the things that go into executing that component of the visit happens with the protocol officer. Gotcha.
0: So, I mean, there's so much, (laughs) this this is so fascinating. Who was your favorite visitor during that time?
1: Yeah, I'd have to say that Queen probably was. I mean, it was the key visit for the entire administration. So the Bush administration, if you had to kind of pinpoint what was the visit, okay. it probably would have been the queen. And she hasn't been okay. back since. And she was also super kind and courteous and congenial. Mm. So mm. she was my favorite because she was just the most kind to us. <laughs> she okay. took me in a room with just her and the Duke, which is her husband, of course. And we spent about 15 minutes talking about how the visit went. She gave me a pair of her personal cufflinks, you know, that she only gives the to, to folks and a signed photo. So it was really, it was just, she was just really nice and appropriate and and made you feel like you're a part of the visit which of course you were so but I mean there's lots of I mean it was over a hundred of kings queens presidents prime ministers over the time there that we um interacted with so okay it runs the gambit
0: (laughs) okay so this was 06 to 09 when you were in this particular so this is
1: so in 2002 is when I went there as an intern came back rushed to finish college and then for the rest of his administration I was in that role so Four years, the final four years years of his administration. Okay.
0: So when you said you had 100 visitors that was falling under your leadership there, that number was much higher than I was thinking. So were some of them quite a bit more high profile than others, or did they all basically follow the same pattern? Yeah,
1: so I guess he was averaging, President Bush was averaging about 300 visits per year during his administration. So that's 300 foreign heads or whatever. But it's various levels. So there's a private visit, so there's no government interaction. There's a working level visit where the leader usually visits the White House and stays at the Blair House across from the White House. And then there's a state visit. So those are the Mm -hmm. three levels. You also get support. If it's a private visit, you have Secret Service detail and a protocol officer, but really minimal. They're there to shop, (laughs) for example, Uh, uh, or whatever, you know, meet with the business. Um, But the U.S. support of the visit ramped up with every kind of echelon. I see. So were you in
0: charge of all 300 of those per year or just the more high-profile ones? There was
1: four of us doing that for the White House, so I kind of got a quarter of those visits.
0: Oh, okay, interesting. So you had three other counterparts, and you would split Mm -hmm. up the visits accordingly. Mm -hmm. Did you see any comedy nominators among the foreign dignitaries that would visit in their
1: demeanors or habits? in some ways it fits the prototypes of where they're from. So you kind of notice the iron fisted leaders and how their staff react around them. A story that I tell sometimes is the president of Yemen visited and he was staying at the Blair House, which is the president's guest house located directly across from the White House. Mm -hmm. We also obviously coordinated all aspects of that. So he stayed at the Blair House. This is like this 200 year old you know, precious gem of a place that we are really proud of. You know, we don't have many old things in the U.S., (laughs) Um, but this is one of them. And so it had some real history to it. A lot of leaders have stayed there. A lot of treaties have been signed there. So, really cool place. So in this case, the President Yemen was staying there. It was in the middle of winter and the President was up in his suite and decided that he was hot and we had a fire going in the room. So his staff kind of took it upon themselves to kind of panicked and ran to us and said, turn it down. And it wasn't happening fast enough because, you know, (laughs) it's hard to cool all the place, I guess. So their staff extinguishes the fire in the fireplace, takes out the smoldering logs and put them on a, one of our 200 year old platters, silver platters, uh, and put it in the elevator and push down. And (laughs) the doors open downstairs, (laughs) smoke comes billowing out and they had solved their problem. (laughs) Obviously created a problem for us, (laughs) but I mean, you could tell how his staff if they did not solve that problem for him right away, okay. there have been consequences. So okay. kind of fits the stereotypes of the world. So these, yeah. the African leaders are much more laid back and the Koreans are very uptight about their visit. The Japanese are very uptight about their visit and okay. it had to be just so, you know? So it really, the one common denominator, I'd <laughs> say it fit the stereotype of mm. the visiting country of what you might mm. think.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Mean. We're gonna jump around just a little sure, bit here. Sure. So could you go back and talk just a little bit more about that time at the White House, you also helped coordinate some of President Bush's trips into foreign countries. I did. Was that like a two-part role during your time there? Yeah,
1: so the protocol office travels with the president wherever he goes. So you do some of the similar activities you do in the U.S. for the foreign visit. So whenever a head of state would visit the United States, we'd obviously coordinate those components. And whenever the president would travel abroad, we travel and, and coordinate some of the components with Foreign protocol office in the visiting country. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So wherever President Bush went, we would go with him. And I also separately did presidential advance, which is a White House member goes ahead to a site in a visiting country and executes that component of the visit. So a good example is I stayed well a month in Israel almost when the president went to Israel in lieu of his visit. And then when he arrived, we were at the. Um, Sea of Galilee was my component of the visit. So okay. you kind of execute all components with when the president arrives, what happens, you know, and you're coordinating all aspects, making sure people are in the right place. And okay. that portion of the visit goes well, but purely focused on the U.S. president as opposed to the interaction with a foreign leader. Okay, gotcha. So it kind of touched a lot of parts of the U.S. government and the Department of State, worked really closely with the Department of State. They even had protocol has an office in the Department of State as well. Okay. So it almost really amounted to a diplomatic role in a lot of ways. I see. So we even had diplomatic passports, you know, for example. Okay. So you were the first and last person that foreign visitor interacted with, or from a working level perspective, coordinated or executed the visit when the president was abroad. So you're really the face of the U S from a working perspective hmm. to that foreign government. Hmm. So a lot of diplomacy happens at that level.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so in the case of the Israel trip, you would have went over an entire month before the trip. Correct. And then how long was your period of time that you were in charge of when Bush was on site?
1: So he was there for an hour and a half. <laughs> so a so month were to prepare there for, for an hour and a half. You were
0: there for a month in advance yep. for an hour yep. and a half yep. Worth yep. of his time.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. So
0: <laughs> when you're blocking out that hour and a half, do you again break it down to five-minute increments? Or how do you go about breaking down that hour and a half? Into yep. Here so here so what we want the to president's
1: schedule that? also breaks down to about five-minute increments, unless it's some other special component that is like an hour block, you know? You should see the president's schedule. I mean, I have some copies of it, but I mean, it is very, very detailed. And the staff gets the same schedule. It tells you what car to go into, tells you what helicopter to jump onto, where you're sitting at a table. They have a seating chart. I mean, it just it's very well thought through. Let's put it that way. Uh, Visiting head of states, less so, but the U.S. president when he travels, it is an enormous effort that no one sees. I mean, Secret Service is one component, right? They're sending tanks over there and helicopters over there on planes, but yeah, the actual effort that goes into the planning stage and making sure that everything is thought through is pretty immense. So as
0: a protocol officer, you were in charge. You would have a team. How big was your team in a situation like that?
1: So we were, the one protocol representative was really the only representative from the White House Protocol Office. We coordinated with the other branches or offices in the White House to, to play that role. So we leaned on Secret Service as a perfect example. So Secret Service obviously provided the vehicle that the head of state drove in Mm -hmm. they provided the security ahead of time before we got there so we were coordinating you know movements with them if it was a national security advisor we would relay policy pieces with him we really relied on the other branches of government but we were the kind of the fulcrum that it all kind of revolved around and kind of the subject matter expert on the visit okay sure. yeah
0: so is there someone else yet between you and the president as it relates to his schedule a chief of staff or an assistant that you're working with them on your desired schedule and actually executing
1: it or is it? Yeah. So when it comes to presidential advance, yeah, he has lots of infrastructure. So you're really at the tail end. So when the president travels abroad and you're playing a presidential advance role Mm -hmm. as opposed to protocol, you're at the tail end of that planning process and you're purely executing, you know, so a lot of that planning takes place, a lot of decisions of what he does at the sea galley, for example, takes place, you're involved in it, but those decisions are made at the White House. And that schedule is built at the White House and plans are made for the most part there. And you're a part of that and thinking through what it means on the ground, but you're executing at the site. Protocol, you know, when the foreign visit comes to the United States, you're really in the planning process with the foreign embassy. So you're right. building that schedule with them. You're thinking through from a US perspective, does this make sense to visit here or here or you know, all those components? as opposed to executing.
0: What systems or tools did you use? Are those all like custom made because it's that high level of security?
1: It's Pretty straightforward, really. So I think now having owned an ed tech company, all the tools we used now that enables to, to do what we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were a Blackberry is about all we had. It didn't even have a camera. <laughs> so we couldn't even wow. take cool pictures. <laughs> so it, you know, technology has advanced so far that we really, had a paper schedule that we had built and a earpiece, obviously, to communicate, a radio with Secret Service and and others, and a phone. So really that is, it feels silly saying it, but those tools are pretty simple. So you create
0: a schedule that would make its way on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Everyone has this piece of paper.
1: Correct, yeah. The official schedule. Yeah, yeah, you've Mm -hmm. got
0: the headpieces and so on, Mm -hmm. the phones to talk to each other as you're working it it out, but you're not using fancy online gadgets and systems. You're really not. No, mm -mm. not not then. They may now. This was uh, 10 years ago.
1: So it was really pretty straightforward.
0: That's fascinating. <laughs> what was the decision point for you that took you down this career path or decision to want to work at the White House to begin with?
1: Yeah, so it was just an opportunity the Lord provided really. So I was in college, and I, I think I was like SGA president or something, so involved, okay. uh, and the vice president of my university came to me and said, one of my friends who works at the White House was actually the Tennessee lead for uh, the White House, the political office anyway, is looking for an intern. Are you interested? Mm. Not yes. Heck yes. <laughs> yep. uh, so, and then the next day the White House called and we had an interview and the interview went really well and I guess they enjoyed what I was doing on the campus. I was also college Republican president and this and that so I was politically active. Okay. They liked that and um, literally the next week I was in the West Wing. It would happen that fast. Is so, this
0: before Cape Town?
1: This is before Cape Town, yes. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, so we were This is
0: University of Memphis? University of Memphis, yep. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, so
1: I interned all of 2002 which was an election year, so it was a lot of fun. So, Carl Rove was the political advisor, mm-hmm. keep in mind. And he was credited with the success of the midterm elections, which, you know, the Republicans won a lot, which is unusual for a, a midterm for a president. So, it was fun to be a part of that. We had the whole Southeast. I was managing the whole Southeast with him and keeping the president advised politically on everything election oriented or politically oriented in those Southeast states.
0: I see. So, yeah. So even backing up further, then, was political involvement always something that you wanted to have? Or was that always an area of interest for you? Yeah,
1: I was definitely very politically active up until I left the White House. And okay. still, obviously, business takes us different routes. But, sure. but, yeah, no, I was very politically active and was a college Republican president and did a lot of interesting things, worked on a lot of campaigns. I worked on the president's campaign as well oh, wow. uh, at okay. his national campaign up in D.C. So, yeah, it was definitely politically active. And uh, that guy was the political director for the state of Tennessee for the president. Hmm. And yeah, it just made sense. And so yeah, went to the White House and did that internship and then came back and literally rushed to finish college. I finished college to take advantage of that White House job. I think I took twenty one hours one summer and twenty four the the next semester to finish in time to take advantage of that that other role. Okay. So rushed through college and then went back up to take that White House protocol job. I see. Yeah.
0: So you mentioned at your internship in two thousand two you
1: worked with Carl Rove. Carl Rove and
0: what was his role at that time?
1: Director of political affairs, I think, is what his, his title was. So okay. he was a policy advisor, all yep. domestic. So okay. domestic policy advisor with a keen ear towards politics on the ground. So he was, in his mind, he was looking at the re-election. Mm-hmm. So what political policy and political activities does the president do to get him re-elected in essence? right. So he was thinking through those and keeping the president abreast and determining what the president's actions would be with him. When it came to politics and policy and how that impacted the re-election.
0: And what was it like working for him? Because my political knowledge is pretty minuscule to what you have in your experiences. But my understanding was Karl Rove was an extremely smart guy. And President Bush actually leaned on him a lot.
1: Karl Rove in modern history, he changed the paradigm in a lot of ways. So he, day one in office, he was thinking about the re-election. So no one had really, to that degree, and with that intentionality, planned the re-election. So we started building that re-election campaign grassroots, you know, from day one. So he really led that effort. So that was really interesting. And then from a policy perspective, all things were politics, not in a bad way, but, you mm-hmm. know, politically impacted voters. Mm-hmm. So those policy decisions were vetted and thought through with Carl kind of there. So, yeah, Bush leaned on him a lot. Not that he ever made a decision for the president. I think that was uh, something that came up that I never saw for sure. Okay. But the president was very decisive. (laughs) And uh, I think the president wrote a book called Decision Points because the job of the president is to make the decisions. Yeah. And he did that and did not need anybody to do that for him. Mm -hmm. So the president was – and I was obviously around the president a lot. He was a very competent person, very Mm -hmm. fun to be around, but very serious and really – solid president in terms of making decisions and executing the job of the president. So.
0: Was there any ways that stuck out to you significantly where President Bush was
1: different than maybe a perception of him in certain areas? Yeah, I think that that he was a puppet was a total political ploy from the left, I guess you could say. But no, he was very engaged and very active in the decisions that he made. So he is not passive in any way. Mm-hmm. I think he was painted in some ways that Carl was the brain, I think, you know, he actually got the nickname of yeah. the brain. But it was fascinating to see the inner workings of the West Wing, and I was thrilled to be involved. I mean, you think of a White House intern as going to get the coffee, right? But mm-hmm. I mean, Carl had me writing the first drafts of the president's briefs for when he would travel to one of our states. And wow. so I was really involved, and it was really neat to see inside the West Wing, first of all, and, and how it all worked and mm-hmm. the actuality of how the West Wing kind mm-hmm. of worked. And then to be involved in... Congressman calls Carl, right, or Mm -hmm. Senator calls Carl to have a discussion about XYZ topic. Mm -hmm. How does that look from that kind of inception point all the way through the actual policy decision Mm. and what that looks like? So that was interesting to see, too, kind of how the government worked and how policy gets made. It was super interesting.
0: I'm curious what you saw in President Bush specifically, but even other foreign leaders, clear traits, habits they might have had leadership traits that were key indicators of their success?
1: I'm not sure there's any commonality that I found. I think a lot of it in in all these countries goes back to politics. You know, Mm -hmm. the president of Yemen does not have to worry about politics because he's a dictator. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think in terms of political leadership, Mm -hmm. which is where I was located, it really, I mean, making connections. President was good at this. Carl's good at this, too really engage with people. So Carl, okay. and he could remember a name like no one. I could not believe okay. it. Of all the hundreds and thousands of people that he met, he never yeah. forgot a name. Wow. So I think in president Bush, in terms of him, he had a real concern for others. And I think we as Christians, right, are to put others for ourselves mm-hmm. and, you know, like Christ put us for himself, mm-hmm. that concern for others and that real desire to serve others, I think really proved well for the president and politically and also as a style of leadership, concern for others and and just the willingness to serve, that you're in the office of the the president, not to better yourself or not to Mm -hmm. gain anything, but to serve your constituents. And I think that was from a core principle standpoint and from a leadership perspective, he really embraced that notion. So that that was one of my- President Bush. Yeah, and subsequently Carl as well. It was neat to see the president's leadership really trickles through Mm -hmm. the staff Mm -hmm. and really whatever the president believes and kind of holds fast to, really resonates and is made known or kind of like almost repeated or absorbed mm. amongst the other staff. I, at least I saw that kind of from my own perspective. But I think the same would be true for a foreign head of state or head of government. So mm-hmm. leading is kind of contagious for you know the patrons that that you're serving. So that was interesting.
0: So... When you say what Bush is focusing on or some of his values gets kind of permeated throughout the organization, is that because he's a strong leader or is that because that's sort of the way the system is built and whoever is going to be president, that will permeate?
1: I don't think it was systemic really. I think it was literally dependent on that person. So it was a true leadership trait, you know, Mm -hmm. in this case, willingness to serve others or have the perspective that you're serving others and not Mm -hmm. there for other reasons. I think it was based on that person and Mm -hmm. not any kind of systemic way that it kind of gets – seminated down. Sure. Uh, now, other governments, for sure. I mean, there structures built to disenfranchise or, or facilitate <laughs> the decision-making process or to make sure that rules are followed. Mm-hmm. But I think here in the U.S., at least from my perspective, that it was really a qualitative leadership style that was kind of passed down naturally.
0: So now looking back on your time specifically at the White House, in politics, you rubbing shoulders with President Bush, Karl Rove you know, the queen of England. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And you, you got to see kind of firsthand, very up close and personal politics at a very high level, sure, sure. the highest level. What have been some of your takeaways that you've taken from that time maybe and sort of potentially even incorporated going forward?
1: My wife and I joke, Shannon and I joke that it's all anticlimactic. So that's one thing. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's nothing exciting uh, sometimes compared to that. But um, seeing big things happen on a national or international scale was really exciting for me. So I kind of identify for myself, one, I'm kind of a big idea guy. Mm -hmm. So I think kind of finding your place, you know, maybe you're task oriented, you enjoy completing tasks Mm -hmm. like a developer, or maybe you're a leader, maybe ideation is one of your strong suits. For me, I really, I couldn't get excited about something without it being like something big, right? Something, so Thrivis for example, changing education feels big. Mm You know, facilitating a visit of a head of state felt big, you know, helping the King of Jordan accomplish his mission and accomplish U.S. policy in the United States felt big, you know. So, I found that I was really disinterested after trying to transition to business, you know, and do a job was not interesting at all to me, and I felt so unfulfilled. So in essence, I learned something about myself, I think, through that, that I didn't know until I left the administration.
0: So, let's jump into Thrive. First, I want to know, what made the switch from politics to business?
1: Yeah, so Shannon and I made a conscious decision not to stay in the next administration. Okay. So we had the opportunity to stay if we wanted to. There's a career okay. position that was available. Okay. In protocol, so you have political appointees and you have career positions. We decided not to serve in the Obama administration. Okay. I told people if Obama gets elected, I'm leaving the country. <laughs> and oh, we did. Okay. You know, we, we went to South Africa. It was a joke. We wouldn't really have left the country. Is that in. the time? Yeah. So the, that is the time. Yeah. yeah. So the yeah. president's administration ended, and. Uh, I chose to go get a master's in Cape Town instead, mm-hmm. of, uh, instead of stick around. And, and DC was not the place for us. We never wanted to be a lifelong DC, you know, in, in the belt, inside the beltway. Okay. To us, it was a, a really interesting period in our life, very formative part of our life that we got to spend in DC. Mm-hmm. But Tennessee was home and, and our family was here. And, mm-hmm. and I wanted to serve the state of Tennessee in some way and not another capacity, especially mm-hmm. not another administration. So mm-hmm. we really kind of felt like, hey, that was really special and really unique informative, and the next chapter is waiting to kind of be written, but that's not in D.C. So if Obama would not have been elected, do you think you would have stayed on? There's probably a good chance that I would have for a time, but I think we were always, had the plan was in our minds to get back to, to Tennessee. Hmm. I just, I did not enjoy D.C. <laughs> it hmm. just wasn't, it just didn't fit my... Lifestyle, Oh, fascinating. Uh, yeah. Are you
0: talking about your life aspect of D.C. or the job? Or yeah, both? like living in D.C.
1: Say? Yeah, so the job oh, was okay. thrilling, right? But the actual place, D.C., I mean, it's a neat city to visit and, to, I guess, to live for a while. But it just wasn't – I mean, it was just hard, right? Living in D.C., I thought was really hard. Like living in New York or, you know, any large city, just nothing's easy, right? Finding a parking spot's not easy. Going to grocery store's not easy, right? Okay. Carrying yeah. your groceries on your back, you know, are not easy. You know, so it's yeah. just – it just wasn't comfortable, and it didn't fit our lifestyle. We've never raised kids there. It just not doesn't fit us. The, the okay. culture did not fit us very well. We're kind of Southerners at heart and enjoy yeah. the South. So there are lots of things about D.C. that we knew <laughs> it was not a permanent place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know lots of folks who went from Texas to D.C. and stayed there for the rest of their life. They're still there now, or Tennessee, mm-hmm. too. But we that was not for us. I so see. so it was a, the administration ending was a great opportunity for us to do something fun. First of all, I traveled, like— I think we went to, I went to 40 countries during that time that I was there. So we were, I was traveling wow. an awful a lot. I don't know if 40 is a lot or little, but it felt like a lot in a short yeah. period of time. So I was on the road a lot and Shannon was at home a lot. I often would send her on a cruise with a friend or something when oh, I was really? in some, bus- yeah, some weird heaven? country. Yeah. Cause she was in college at the time. Oh, um, I see. It's funny to think back how young we were, but, mm-hmm. uh, and how much responsibility we were given <laughs> as a 20 year old. And uh, no kids at this point? No DC? kids at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So we, uh,
0: so yeah. why do you say what you did about President Obama? What were you concerned about that you said you would leave this job and furthermore you might even leave the country? Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: yeah no, I think so. It would we were, I guess, when you're young and kind of dumb, we were much more like politically opinionated. I think we've okay. kind of moderated, not moderated, but we've toned it down a little bit, right? Yeah, as okay. you get older, you kind of do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not like some political <laughs> hack, you know, anymore. Yeah. I probably was a political <laughs> hack back then. Um, so I think even now we probably would not have felt comfortable serving because you serve at the pleasure of the president when you're politically appointed, right? So okay, sure. you are serving that president. So okay. I just didn't feel like I would want to serve President Obama for a lot of reasons. I mean, politically, okay. we're not aligned and probably religiously we're not aligned either, okay. you know, and, and from a Christian perspective. So it just didn't feel right. It wasn't right for us. And um, it was time to do something new um, okay. for us. So. Okay, and so, it was exhausting. <laughs> we yeah. were on the road a lot and, and just had a lot to do, and it was yeah, yeah it was time to rest.
0: <laughs> yeah, I could certainly understand that. I mean, in 40 countries in a few years is a lot, by the way. <laughs> okay, is it? Okay, all right. <laughs> I think that is a lot. Yeah, let's jump into Thrivus. Can you kind of walk us through what Thrivus is?
1: Sure, sure. So Thrivus was a startup that I started, uh, I guess, about four years ago now, that its purpose was to help learners thrive. So we, we created it. That was our three little words that we talked about, Thrivus. But it was an ed tech company serving K-12 school districts, mostly public school districts, with a teaching and learning solution and a learning analytics Mm -hmm. solution. So our two products facilitated online teaching and learning in the classroom, almost replicated what you do in a classroom, but online. And then we were really keen to correlate learning experiences, whether that's experiencing content or participating in a discussion, correlate that learning activity with actual students' performance in the end, mm-hmm. whether it's mm-hmm. on an assessment or whether it's some qualitative measure. Mm-hmm. But connecting learning with performance was the real mission of Thrivest, uh, mm-hmm. And that's what we were kind of bent on helping learners thrive, which is where the Thrivest gets its name.
0: And when did that seed get planted?
1: So I think it goes back to that doing big things thing that I mentioned earlier that I kind of identified after leaving the administration. Yeah. So I was working in K-12 before that, mostly in a marketing capacity for another uh, education company and it just felt so small. So we, my brother and I, we built this teaching and learning platform. We were using it for, an investor relations firm was using it and a couple other folks. And uh, I connected with some other K-12 colleagues and and some other academics that were, had some national notoriety. Mm -hmm. And they were just so impressed with what we were doing. So we took about six months and did some due diligence on what the market looked like and could we raise enough capital and like all those questions you do. And was it big enough and was it magnitudes better than what was currently in the market? Which I think was probably the most time spent was, were we willing to take the risk and do this, right? In a big market, K-12 market's big, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. And was it magnitudes better? Was it better enough to move a district from their current online course solution Mm -hmm. or their current, you know, digital solution to Thrivest? And it's a startup, right? So it's so risky. Yep. But we felt like in the end that we felt like it was, it was big enough and it was better enough to, to go raise the capital and build mm-hmm. the product and mm-hmm. try to gain traction.
0: And you mentioned that was about a six-month process. When did that six-month process take place? Because you founded Thrivus in about 2014,
1: correct? Correct. So that was when my brother and I were working for this investor relations firm. So we took six months. We built a minimum viable product pretty quickly mm-hmm. and uh, kind of got it out there got it in front of educators, in front of teachers, in front of students, in front of districts to solicit feedback. And the feedback was good. And I think probably most key, we had a partner in the state of Georgia. So the Department of Education in Georgia, their virtual school, partnered with Us early. So that was really, that gave us a partner, a whole state, right, that had actual leaders, decision makers, stakeholders, making decisions with us and keeping us kind of between the lines where we could develop and know that this was the the market received it right because mm-hmm. the market told us directly that it was uh, it was appropriate for the market. Mm-hmm. So as CEO, I, I spent a lot of time listening to the district, school districts, and the teachers and, and learners too, and then building our product. And the rest of the time was spent raising capital. So,
0: mm. yeah. so did you always know that if you're career in politics would come to an end that you'd want to get into business or was there a natural step in the middle there?
1: Yeah, no, there, there was no step. So I was just dissatisfied with what I was doing. I never considered myself an entrepreneur really was super interested in international you know, affairs and which is what I got my master's in, but it just, we wanted to be in Tennessee and we wanted to serve the state of Tennessee in some way. So it was again, just trying to do something big and something meaningful that we, mm-hmm. we went back to and made that decision. It helped too that my brother Mark owns a software development company, so okay. we were able to cheaply and, and quickly build and safely build a piece of software, or build a product. Okay, that gave us good feedback from the market to, to mm-hmm. determine whether to move forward or not.
0: So. so did you go to him and say, "Hey, this is what I like to build. Could I hire a contract, or would you work with me on helping to build it?" Yep. And so he was sort of your yeah. So we design.
1: right. So we we created the company, created Thrivest, and. He and I split up the shares mm. and we decided he would fund in, in part the development. And, I and we would, I would obviously build the team and, and build the product yep. and spend all 100% of my time on it. So that was that's kind of how it originated. But yeah, I think the market was telling us that it was worth the risk mm-hmm. to, to move forward and to get investors involved and mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: How was the raising capital portion? How did you know who to reach out to? Was there common denominators among the ones that you saw having an interest in this mm-hmm. and others maybe that didn't? Or what was that whole capital raise process yeah. like?
1: It was terrible in one word. Well, <laughs> I mean, raising- Almost every yeah. time I hear that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> raising capital is hard. Um, and we were, I think we were raising a million and a half. Okay. So we weren't raising five. So investors, okay. these big private equity firms, they want to do five million up raises, mm-hmm. not a million to three million. So that was one of, the, that one of the struggles, finding the investor base that wanted to do, you know, a million range. Mm-hmm. So that was really hard and i found that i spent a ton of time not thinking about the business and about the product which is the most important thing uh, and not out in the market and then trying to raise capital i think 50 percent of my time 40 percent of my time was raising capital like going and pitching investors when over what period of time so that's over a year a okay, basic period like of a year 2014 or before 2014 so that was so really it was 15 16 so we self-funded okay. for a while and got it to a point where it was an investor could, you know, with any sense, could see it. You know, we invested in it, and, and it was a real thing. And okay. there was some real interest and real customers. Yep, and real potential. So it was really late 15 and the first half of 16.
0: And did you have a minimum ask for an investor? You had that sort of laid out, or were you take any money? that Yeah. Were- so
1: we we signed a term sheet with a private equity group that did okay. did 800 of it. So we I we see. we were not. Yeah, it was hard to do little one offs. We didn't do a lot of uh, we can do like a lot of convertible notes, for example, like a fifty okay. or a hundred. We okay. try to stay away from that. We we wanted again. I mean, it was time consuming enough to pitch one, yes, and speak to their group of investors. But yeah, I think if it's if that's the way you want to do it, I think that's it's okay. Mm-hmm. But it is much more time consuming. And mm-hmm. I mean, you think about if I were to pitch you on something you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to be super compelling just to get interested, and it takes three or four more meetings after that, right? So sure. we are trying to eliminate. Or probably more than more I mean, 10 meetings or whatever it does yep. to actually get that investor to a place where he will write a check mm-hmm. so we were we knew that we wanted a private equity firm um, to partner with and uh, raise it from them okay uh, so.
0: how much of the desired outcome did you have in your mind before you started thrivest you, you sold it in I want to say 16 17
1: 17 yeah. mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: so was that the plan all along and to the extent that you did have you know, actual desired outcomes in mind before you started this thing. How specific were they?
1: Sure. So I think, I mean, a business, you know, this is so, you have no idea, (laughs) you know, it's just bumpy road. So Mm -hmm. we had in mind, we did not intend to sell the company. We were doing our series A capital raise and this, a local company, Ingram Content Group Mm -hmm. was, was interested in the series A raise Mm -hmm. and they just made it make a sense where they, I mean, they wanted a digital solution so bad that they made it make sense for us to, mm. to do that, and they kept. I think most importantly to us, they kept the vision intact entirely. Mm. So it was the same vision. You know, we weren't forsaking the vision for you know for a sale or for an exit. Sure. It was more about for us. They kept the vision, a reasonable group, locally based, uh, a large multi-billion-dollar company that we would know that would have resources to fund Thriveist and, yep. and keep on going.
0: So, for example, this, even the sale was not necessarily
1: the master Paul along? So I think, yeah, eventually an exit was the idea. Mm-hmm. So we didn't want to own that. This wasn't a lifestyle business. Sure. Uh, we definitely had raised capital and intended to return capital and, and return our own capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was always part of the process. So it was mm-hmm. more of an eight-year to ten-year stretch oh, that see. we were considering, okay. which is pretty typical for a, a, a startup exit. You sure. know? But it just the opportunity kind of presents itself. And, I you see. know, like as an entrepreneur, if you do multiple ventures, some work out great. Some work out awesome. Some work out, you know, on a timeline that it doesn't quite fit what you had, you know, but mm-hmm. you, you can't be so silly to pass up an opportunity or to think that you, or be so headstrong that you, sure. you miss an opportunity or do something silly. So. Sure.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a fair point. Mm-hmm. What did the team look like when you sold that in 2017? What did... That actual bodies of Thrivus look like. I'm I'm picturing it could go either way. The one is there's very few because it's mostly online Mm -hmm. software, Mm -hmm. but I'm just curious what the team looked like. Yeah,
1: so we had quite a bit of a customer support team and some academics too. So the market kind of dictated you really needed a subject matter expert, an academic to be with us in the market. So so we had about, I guess we had about eight people US based, and then we had our our Russian based development team, which is about another 10 guys developing.
0: At that point was that under Pilgrim, is it? Or nope. Or- so they had
1: they had left Pilgrim. We had broken them off. Mark and I had broken them off and I see. they came and worked for, for us directly. I see. Uh, and in Thrivist. Yeah. Okay. So they're dedicated that dedicated team. And that happened in, in two thousand fifteen. So we, we made the decision to break it off from Pilgrim that we had something, you know, worth yep. worth um, breaking a team and dedicating really from a fundraiser perspective. You want a dedicated mm-hmm. team mm-hmm. who's dedicated to Thrivus, not some consultant. You know that, that I was, see. Sure. So that was the Part of the reason for that was to make sure that we had the right story to tell mm-hmm. an investor. Mm-hmm. So that, yes, yeah, so we dedicated. So, yeah, so, you know, Ingram kept most of the team, most of the team came with us and mm-hmm. they were thrilled with the people that that were, were with us and the whole dev team came too. So that dev team um, and, so. and most of the people involved early are still with uh, Thrive today. Oh,
0: okay, wonderful. Yeah. So when Ingram makes you an offer much sooner than you thought and you wind up having that sale, you were founder and owner and CEO. Did you have to clear that with investors? Did you have any other investors that had so much stake you had to clear that, or was that largely your decision? I'm curious how that worked.
1: Yeah, we still owned the vast majority of shares in the company, okay. so we were, we were lucky enough to do whatever we wanted to do. So we, okay. from a board perspective, we had all the votes. So yeah, it was really we had raised a little enough, you know, small enough amount, you know, around a million million and a half to where we still had complete control of the company, and that was that was by design. So we were okay. really intentional about. <laughs> raising just enough, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of the best practice, raise just enough to get you to your next fundraise, you know, in our our case, Series A. So I would kind of describe that as our seed funding, and Series A would have been the next $2 million raise or something that would have been a larger percentage of the company. Yeah.
0: So I'm curious then, you know, as you look back on this experience, what would be some of your best advice to someone that's working, building something right now that they want to sell, or maybe they're thinking about doing this in the future? Sure.
1: Yeah, no, I think being really thoughtful on the front end. I think a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake that an idea has any value. Mm -hmm. First of all, someone's thought of that idea before. I mean, guaranteed. Uh, And two, an idea is worthless. Uh, It's all about the execution. Mm -hmm. So making sure that your idea and the product that you're about to build is, like I said, magnitudes better than Mm -hmm. anything out there. That, I mean, night and day, that there is an opportunity that... That you can have a complete advantage or that is, you know, unexplored in some way or the market has not, that a competitor is not offering the market. And it's so much better that somebody's willing, even an enterprise is willing to change or adopt that solution. I think that just thinking through that on the front end and doing lots of market research and understanding mm-hmm. that, because, I mean, because... You know, at the level, if you're really going to raise capital or fund it yourself, a large, you know, an actual venture, not like a hobby, but like a, a venture. Sure. You really need to think through it and, and make sure that it's magnitude is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that would be a one piece of advice. And two, I think making so people are so critical to a business, and especially the early stage, right? So they have an inordinate amount of influence. Early hires have an inordinate amount of influence on your business early, right? So when you're when you're large, when you have 150 employees, that hire is probably less impactful on the trajectory of the company. But early, really pivotal. So making sure the people that you you bring to the company early, one, th- that you actually need that hire and mm-hmm. being really, you know, that you're just so strained and you're so desperate for that position, but only to that point where you're like near breaking point do you hire that person. Mm-hmm. Because people are the most expensive, you know, besides mm-hmm. building a product, it, it really is the, the brunt of the cost of running a business, and you know this. So keeping payroll to an absolute minimum is really critical. I feel like I didn't do an awesome job of that, frankly. I, I feel like I probably hired too many people too early, but I think it's probably a more seasoned entrepreneur, probably like yourself, <laughs> would, would, be, uh, would be more hesitant to hire and really only hire when you absolutely have to. hmm that's, that's actually such a great point because we've talked
0: about this before and one of the, the analogies that I use for your exact point here is something that I learned when I was learning to fly planes which I'm not current in anymore but the instructor always made it very clear that we knew it's better to land a plane Long and fast and short and slow. Yeah. If you try to land a plane short and slow, you're falling out of the sky, yeah. everyone's dead. Right. <laughs> if you land it long and fast, you're going into the grass, you're maybe hitting a fence, yeah. you might even be hitting a tree, but no one's dying. Right. And I think of the same thing when it comes to cash flow in a business, mm-hmm. and it speaks to your hiring point. Oh, it's better to be overworked a little bit yes. and have right. cash flowing be a little better. Yeah. And it does also depend on the cycle of the company and you know and and, and how things are going. But in general, yes, it's better to keep that business going yeah. long and fast than short sure. and slow. Yeah. And, you know, I, I completely so.
1: agree, Yep. Yeah. Especially with the startup. I mean, yes. uh, you know, seasoned business or a, a larger business is different, but startup, yeah, that, that those early hires and the number of people is critical.
0: Was the software development piece to this intimidating to you? I'm assuming you didn't have much experience with that up until this point. Was that an attractant to you, or negative to you that this company would involve a very online, software-driven piece to
1: it? Yeah, first of all, it was a crash course. I mean, I'm not even sure I could have told you what a server was like okay. eight years ago, right, or six years ago. So it really it was changing industries for me completely, right? So I went from you know international relations type role in politics, mm-hmm. and then to you know kind of K twelve marketing, kind of you know mm-hmm. to one starting a company, first-time founder, mm-hmm. and building a product really for the first time. So, I did have a degree of comfort because we used my brother's skill set, which is building software. That sure. helped a lot. But yeah, it really was a it was a crash course. So I felt like I was fish out of water a lot of times, mm-hmm. and it was just a lot of quick learning <laughs> yeah. um, to understand what it meant to build a piece of software mm-hmm. and how to product manage that product into mm-hmm. existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. It was not a skill set, it had to be learned. Yeah, yeah, certainly.
0: (laughs) What did you see that Thrivus could do that was then incrementally better than what what else was out there? Yeah, so I think
1: our secret sauce was basically exploiting this new standard to connect learning with performance. So now, all of a Mm -hmm. sudden, because of this new standard that had been created in education that allowed us to pass data from a lot of sources, Mm -hmm. we can now collect data and holistically understand how a student is learning. Mm. So that is like mind blowing in, in a lot of ways. So they're learning on a lot of systems and doing a lot of different types of learning activities. Thinking about, think about it in a classroom. You're participating, you're having a discussion, right? You're you're submitting an essay, you're doing an assessment, you're experiencing an ebook, mm-hmm. you're reading, you know, you're annotating, you're doing lots of learning activities. So to take all those learning activities and understand what is working for that student is like super interesting. Mm. So that making that correlation and basically providing the district and that student and their learner and their teacher, this is what is working for that student. Um, that was the kind of mind-blowing thing why we move forward with Rivas. So now we could collect all that learning data from disparate systems mm-hmm. and create a correlation between that learning activity or that learning experience with how that impacted an assessment or some other qualitative measure. So how we can could, we could all of a sudden measure learning, in other words. So before we could not measure learning, it was kind of like, well, the test says this, but how did they get to the A, B, C on the test? Yeah. And, you know, what was the path and what yeah. worked and what didn't work? So all of a sudden, because of this new standard that allows us to collect learning data, mm-hmm. we could all of a sudden measure learning in a way that we couldn't before. And the new standard you're referring to is Thrivest. No, the new standard was called Experience API. It's, it's kind of techy, but okay. it's a new data standard. It looks a lot like an activity statement. Mm. If you, you think about a Facebook, like I did this, you know? Mm-hmm. So Facebook and Google pioneered activity statements. So literally a way of recording an experience. Hmm. So all of a sudden they created a standard, the U.S. government created a standard that allowed us to collect learning experiences. So you think about a learning experience, is listening to a podcast, for example, that is a learning experience. I hope somebody learned something during this podcast, sure. you know. So all of a sudden, we could, could start to collect these learning activities and start to piece together from an analytics perspective what's working, what's not working. But that standard was created, actually created by a company, wrote the specification here in Franklin. Was another such a, such an interesting, I mean, God sovereign, right? So wow. So that standard was written. The SME on that standard was like literally blocks from Thrivus' office. So we spent a lot of time with that company who wrote the standard for the US government, thinking through what this looks like in K-12. So they were very, they were doing this in corporate. That company was very forward thinking uh, using that specification or that new standard mm. in corporate learning. We wanted to use it in K-12. So it really, we had a partner who was doing it well
0: mm-hmm.
1: for corporate learning and development types. So we could we could just safely and, and uh, really competently partner with them to do that in case and we're still part we're still a partnership today
0: okay so that standard can you dumb that standard down just a little bit more it's creating a essentially a code of conduct for what information you can gather from people
1: it just tells all the systems that are creating data how okay. to send the data so it, it, it sends it in a, in a triple so john smith read ebook titled to kill a mockingbird so those noun verb object that was the specification. They told you how to pass the data. Before, it was mm. everybody did it their own way, right? Mm. So it, just like your USB port, right? So before, people connected to computers in a lot of different ways, right? Mm-hmm. You had to have that exact little square peg and, and or round hole or mm-hmm. until somebody created the USB standard. So now, everybody hears of that standard, and it works, right? You can buy something you don't have to worry about, man, is this going to plug into my computer? Mm-hmm. Yes, of course it does because they adhere to that that standard called oh, USB. So now in kind of the learning ecosystem, these data providers or these other systems could pass data in a single way and it would come to a single repository and it would work. Does that make sense? It <laughs>
0: does make sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And when did that happen?
1: So that happened in 2014. Okay, and so that really, really wild. was we, right on the heels of that. Yes, yeah, so we, we were probably too early. You know, okay. I mean, these things you can always, you're always too early, I guess. But this was a thing where we were spot on. The company that wrote the specification was here in Franklin, yeah. Tennessee. And um, we had yeah, just felt so right. So, so what we actually built was the piece of software was called a learning record store. So, okay. uh, so, the learning record store was the big data warehouse that captured all those data feeds from these various systems and we were one capturing it it was the system of record for learning data mm-hmm. and we were doing analytics on that data so would thrivis have been able to do what it did without
0: that other piece coming first
1: definitely not so okay. it would have been or let, let's been put it, it would have been much more expensive uh, of that so we would have we would have been an integrations company building integrations instead of a learning analytics company, which yeah. is what we want to be. So we, okay. didn't want to, we didn't want to write a bunch of integrations or build a lots, lots of little middleware pieces. Sure. We wanted to build a place for that learning data to come mm-hmm. and provide analytics, valuable analytics, to mm-hmm. K-12 districts.
0: Hmm. Did you notice anything as your time as founder and CEO of thrivest in the business world that was markedly different to how things work in the political world?
1: Yeah, in a lot of ways it feels like apples and oranges. Like when you're working okay. for the government – you're not under the same pressures as you are as a business owner, right? So I mean it's completely different, right? So you're you're not worried about payroll, you're not worried about actually being productive in a, in a limited amount of time mm-hmm. and being responsible with other people's money in the mm-hmm. same sense that you are have to give it back, right? Mm-hmm. The US government is probably not gonna have to give back the trillion dollars of debt. Yeah. <laughs> they well, that they heck, borrow, you don't even the, care about budgets, right, probably, that's right. right. <laughs> yeah. Well clearly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think that, that would probably it's probably not very helpful from a listener's perspective, but um, yeah, the pressures are just entirely different. Um,
0: So as you were, I'm also curious as you were getting into Thrivis and, you know, becoming CEO and leading this thing, you hadn't been in this space before. So how were you keeping yourself up at the speed of business? Were there people or places you were learning from, or how did you, how did you get input along the way?
1: Sure. So I think was key was my first hire was this academic who was, keenly tuned into the market happenings and, mm. and herself had run the Tennessee virtual school. So mm. she was really up to speed. So I, I provided the kind of technical and kind of CEO type and she provided the and product to, to a degree uh, and she provided the industry knowledge. So oh, she okay. was and she was going to the conferences and, and going yeah. and, and in these conversations, sometimes with me, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. But she was the person really that I trusted to know the market well. And she really played that subject matter expert role mm-hmm. and really understood academia and a K-12 district administrator's perspectives and all, all these things that you you need, you know, from an SME mm-hmm. perspective. She was that to us. So she was my my person that was with me mm-hmm. that knew that all along.
0: I see. And I'm also curious now, how is it that you, you don't own it anymore, but you're still leading it? Well, you're not only leading it, you're you, You have a larger role. Thrivus is like one of the things you're leading at Ingram. Is that correct? Sure, correct. How how, how does this feel now that you're you're still involved, but it's different?
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a great experience. I mean, I'm still playing the role of CEO, just not funding it. So that's a lot of fun. So Mm -hmm. I'm still the vision holder. I'm still the founder, of course. And Ingram has really kind of embraced it and the vision too. So, I mean, some of the pressures that exist as a business owner are not there. So it's great after four or five, you know, really hard years building a business to have a little fun with the vision that you created mm, mm-hmm. and to see it's fun to see the market adopt it, too. So uh, thrivest is really growing. It's fun to see something that you it was an idea in your head to, mm. to you know, to be on the front lines and, and still pushing Thrivest and seeing the market receive it. It's yeah. is a lot of fun. So yeah. and change and change K-12 districts. Thrive is a lot of public districts, some small, some large. It is their digital initiative. It is how they are providing digital content, how they are tracking it, how, all the thing, all things digital. Yeah. Before is textbooks, right? They were like literally going from passing out textbooks to using a digital piece of software, piece of software to provide digital content and various learning experiences online. So it really is a drastic move for a district.
0: Yeah, it sure is.
1: So it, it's fun to see that happen firsthand.
0: Are they, two questions, are they then using iPads or other manipulatives to use it, or are they still using textbooks? And second question is, is this a subscription-type model, or how do, they, yep. how do they buy it?
1: Sure. The big kind of buzzword in, K, in K-12 education is blending learning. Okay. So we still have traditional classrooms, but we're trying to learn how to blend technology, blend instruction okay. <laughs> with pieces of technology. So, yeah, so Thrivist is a, is a cloud-based application. lives on your browser and they use it on so there's a big push to give each child a computer Mm -hmm. in k-12 education or ipad so the problem that they've been having is they pass out these computers and there's nothing on the computer right you have to Mm -hmm. you have to have you have to have the content you have to have something to manage the content so that's where thrives comes in and ingram is one of the largest distributors of k-12 content Mm -hmm. actually in in the nation so they have really close relationships with the publishers mm-hmm. and obviously Thrive is, provides the platform. So it's a really neat marriage and that's one of the reasons we sold to them is because it was so compelling. The value proposition that we offered together was so, so compelling to the market that all of a sudden your content, in the simplest terms, your content that you purchased or spend millions of dollars on as a district comes preloaded on a platform I see. so access is not a problem. You're, yes. not, you're not going to a lot of websites to try to access your content. Mm-hmm. It's frictionless, easy access to your content your core basal content that you're providing instruction with in the classroom. Sure. Yeah. It makes
0: perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Is there ways to, I'm coming back to the, to the sale. How did you think about tax implications? Yeah. When so, it came to sell?
1: so I, my accountant thought through it for us really. I didn't do a lot of thinking, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's definitely ways. And I think that this new tax law, I think gives better treatment to an LLC. Mm-hmm. So I think our, our lawyers too. So we used uh, Baker Donaldson, which is mm-hmm. a large law firm. So we worked really hard to get good legal talent early, that he steered us, you know, and he was used to a lot of uh, early stage companies. Mm. So I think that was, that was key and I would, that would be one of the pieces of advice that I'd give to any entrepreneurs, find a good lawyer who has done early stage companies before and has, sure. from a formation perspective too, has, yep. has helped form early stage companies. But I probably, I probably don't have a very good answer to your second question about sure. taxes. But, yeah. Um, they, yeah, I think thinking through that with someone who's competent and who has done an exit yeah. before is a great idea. Yeah, yeah.
0: no, that's yeah. that's exactly what I was wondering is how how you thought through that, how you handled it. Let's shift gears to just education a little bit. So, obviously, you're, this is your space. So you know a lot about it. I'm curious what your take is on the current American landscape for K through 12.
1: Yeah, so… K-12 education, I mean, we think about technology today and and our use of technology just personally. So I would describe K-12 education as like a decade behind in terms of technology used. Mm -hmm. So they, I mean, textbooks still very prevalent, Mm -hmm. still spending millions and millions of dollars on textbooks, which is fine. So they're just now at the cusp of beginning to introduce technology in the classroom. So it's a really interesting time in K twelve education. I mean, we're talking about things like personalizing learning. So you think about think about your YouTube channel; mm-hmm. it is feeding you personalized videos based on who you subscribe to, right? So if yes. you love space and yep. space is your thing, it's going to provide a dashboard of, of videos, you know, catered to that user who enjoys space. Yes. Well, same thing with personalized learning in K twelve education. If you are struggling on a certain standard, or you're mm-hmm. struggling on a certain area, maybe literature, you know, English literature, or whatever, we can now personalize your learning path to kind of cater to that. So we're using data to inform learning and to offer a more personalized learning experience. So it's the whole concept about, I mean, think about a, a classroom full of kids. They sit in a classroom and everybody gets the same instruction, right? The mm-hmm. teacher teaches whatever that teacher teaches is what, what the, the instruction they receive, as mm-hmm. opposed to maybe... Offering a video piece of video content instead of a passage, you know, maybe you learn better through a video, or maybe you learn better through thinking through a passage. So it's a really interesting time that with technology and with data, we're now able to personalize learning in a way that we couldn't before, and districts are able to blend technology into their pedagogy, what they call pedagogy, Mm -hmm. so the way they deliver instruction. Mm -hmm. So it's really a super interesting time in K twelve education, and we've seen a lot of growth and. We're really at a tipping point where a lot of these districts are introducing technology, and Thrivest in the southeast, especially, is able to to help facilitate instruction.
0: What's so fascinating about that is, in in some very general way, I almost feel like it's there's some similarities to what's happening there in online learning and and the discussions of self driving cars. You have mm-hmm. to make sure the inputs going in are correct. Yep. It still is obviously very teacher dependent, but it's less. It's it's in a sense it's less teacher dependent because you are you want to make sure you get the assumptions right on the back end because this system is about sure. to go out to millions of kids potentially. And right. like what I'm thinking is if someone is less good at literature and really great at math, you need to tell the system whether to teach them less math and just try to get them really good at literature or say, Hey, this kid's great at math. Mm-hmm. They weren't built maybe for literature. Yeah. And so maybe you help them in some ways, but you don't you don't shift everything over to
1: literature. Sure, sure, Like the inputs going in, the assumptions are going to be key. Right. Yeah, there's all kinds of ramifications, but it all starts with collecting data. So that, that's why Thrive was really, really interested in collecting that learning data. So we could do all kinds of interesting things, creating algorithms, mm-hmm. personalizing learning, creating profiles of students. So uh, that, what you just described is a good profile. This profile of this student is they're really strong with math. Mm-hmm. So... One, they should be aware of that, right? One of their strong suits, maybe, and you think about a from a career, lifelong learning perspective or career path, providing feedback to that learner or mm-hmm. to the stakeholders in their education, parents, principal, teachers, providing them information about that is super interesting. But yeah, mm-hmm. but go, the inputs, as you, as you put it, are you're spot on. Like it yeah. starts with collecting the data and then making use of the data.
0: Yeah. I'm curious because we haven't gotten to this... Topic specifically, but I know you're a firm believer and a passion about the gospel. You're also very experienced in education. So, what's your take on, say, an education that is not necessarily Christian versus an education that is explicitly Christian?
1: Sure. So, it's interesting. So, K through 12. Sure, sure. So, so a bit of context. So, Thrivest, one of the things we commonly said around the office was, yes, we help learners thrive, but the only way you can thrive is through Christ. Hmm. So, that was one of the kind of the things that we kind of built Thrivest on, and is how you actually thrive as an individual as a Christian and, and, you know, pleasing God. And, and so we, we had a lot of thought around that. And that was one of the big points of conflict internally Mm -hmm. was when we sold Thrive to Ingram, we obviously lost that component, you know, Mm -hmm. to a degree. Mm -hmm. And we we were really, I I especially was really conflicted and frustrated that, you know, we had an opportunity to share the gospel online that like others probably had not been presented that opportunity. And I, I think you know, God's timing is not our timing, right? So, and you know, think about the three short years, four short years, five short years, whatever that was for over the until we sold the company, relatively short amount of time. But the Lord has introduced other opportunities to share the gospel online that that we wouldn't have had without Thrivus. So, mm. so yeah, so we really had the gospel at heart early. And one of the verses we we really kind of referenced was in Acts thirteen where Paul was writing about about David, and and David he he said. David served God's purpose in his generation. So that's super interesting, almost that, you know, he chose David to serve his purpose, you know, and it was in his generation, of course. So thinking through man and just praying, Lord, we, we, thrivest me, Andrew, want to serve your purpose in our generation. Not my own objectives, but literally be a tool mm-hmm. <laughs> for you, a vessel, to serve your purposes and glorify you. And the Lord's being good to present other opportunities to do that professionally for for us. So yeah, so we were really gospel intentional early, mm-hmm. and we're waiting for various opportunities in the market. So we've had a kind of a, a trade-off, not a trade-off in the sense that we're trading off,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, sharing the gospel or doing interesting things with the gospel online or amongst learning communities. But we're just not doing it with Thrivus. We've just built a sure. skill set, I guess, probably to do it. So mm-hmm. we we'll call it training. Mm-hmm. Laura's training us to to come back after the sale and, and do other interesting things. So we've started another venture to do just that. Um, click gospel is what we call it. So, yeah. so we, we've started that. Mark and I, again, are proponents of that to do that. But yeah, so to answer your question, uh, Thrivus probably is not further in the gospel in the way that we originally envisioned because yes. of the sale.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well that's uh and I want to get into click gospel, but you saying, you know, the two sort of words that jumped out to me are David serving God's purpose in in his generation. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of the beer company, Guinness, the founders of that were yeah. believers. Yeah. yeah. And they had five premises. And one of them was that the founder thought it was important for every person to figure out the Lord's will. For their life and their day essentially, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it comes back it's to purpose and generation, yeah. yeah. Um, I love that and there's a time yeah. aspect of it too because mm-hmm. God is doing a work now mm-hmm. and He's going to be doing a work in 2025, which mm-hmm. might be a little different. Mm-hmm. in the work, you know, so not obviously He's the same God, but there is a God does have a will and a purpose for our generation, yeah. yeah. So I, I love that. Makes me want to drink again, it's too, <laughs> yeah. It <laughs> does, kidding. doesn't it? Now I'm thirsty, yeah, uh, <laughs> right. <I know. laughs> uh, um. Oh, no. Let me ask you this first, and then let's talk about click gospel. So, you have spent significant time abroad, and we didn't even talk much about Cape Town yet. But even your other forty countries, Cape, mm-hmm. um, really Cape Town aside, you spent significant time abroad. But obviously, Cape Town was significant because you were there for three, three, four years. No, just over a year. Yeah, okay, so just for a year. Okay, so so my question is, you've spent significant time abroad. How do you think about international travel for your children? and its importance on their developing a proper worldview.
1: Yeah. Phenomenally important. So we, Shannon and I, have been really keen to get these kids abroad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're doing that this year, actually. We're actually oh, going, wow. we're going to go visit Cape Town again with some friends. We, oh, wow. Obviously Is this first, first trip? So this will kids? be their first trip abroad. Okay. Yeah. And what yeah. are their ages? So we have a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. So okay. There'll be four, five, six when they go in the fall. Okay. Wow. So, yeah, we, good job. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there was some logic behind that. And, uh, it's harder than <laughs> – um, yeah, we waited six years to have kids, and we we're like, oh, let's just pop them out, right? It's going to yes. be – and we'll get it all over with, and it'll be good. That's, well, that's yeah. totally what we
0: thought, too, uh, until right. we hadn't. Right. right. We like, oh, man, it doesn't not work that way. closer than oh. two years.
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, exponentially harder yeah, the closer <laughs> they are. But they're a lot of fun. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so we really think that's important. So we want to give them a global perspective understand America's place in the world, how most of the world lives and, and their perspectives. So we, in, in Cape Town, we spend a lot of time in these, what they call shantytowns or townships, is what they actually call them. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're just that, they're towns, sheds put together that are, are barely standing and you know, what you might mm-hmm. think of as uh, the developing world. But um, we spend a lot of time there. So introducing our, our kids to that lifestyle mm-hmm. and, what that looks like, not only from an economic perspective, but that really money is not, should not be, ought not be the purpose, right? Mm -hmm. So these people are so happy and are are just living the life, but, you know, in poverty. And really it's Christ that is the cornerstone of our lives. And and, um, we ought to just use money to leverage the gospel, (laughs) right, in a lot of ways. So, yeah, so super important for us. And there's some other members of our church, Emmanuel, that, that have a similar thought and I've kind of uh, thought through this with them as well. And they've, uh, they've kept their kids abroad and have lived abroad too. And we plan to live abroad again with our kids at some point. Okay. Um, so very important to What you know. When you
0: say living abroad with your kids. So we've actually just been having this discussion at our household too. Okay, yeah. So how long will you So we would, to do that?
1: I would love to take a sabbatical at some point and live ideally in a developing world or somewhere for about a year. Uh, okay. I think, you know, you think about, I thought we've done some thinking, some casual thinking about this, but you know, that really awkward time, like in sixth and seventh grade when you're, you're, uh, you're not enjoying things. I think that's a perfect time for a child yeah. to be abroad and, and uh, you're not missing high school or anything like that. So, yeah, but yeah, no, that we fully in, intend to at some point yeah, um, be abroad.
0: Yeah. I think that's just so, yeah. so key. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk about click gospel. Sure. What, what is this?
1: First of all, it's super early. We, we, uh, an opportunity presented itself in several churches and some, some organizations that there is a, so here's the problem, right? So you try to solve a problem. Click Gospel is solving the problem to help churches scale instruction uh, within the church. So you think about, it really is as simple as online courses, right? So mm-hmm. a pastor can only meet with so many people or a uh, an elder can only address so many issues, but a lot of those issues are the same issues. So divorce is a good example, right? So Counseling is a good example. So counseling around divorce. So he's probably saying the same things to that divorced couple or that divorced individual again and again and again, right? So if he can gain time and, and have a more fruitful conversation after that person goes through a course or watches a piece of content, that is helping the church kind of scale counseling, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you can say the same thing for anything. Membership training is another good example. So it sounds so basic, but giving churches a way to facilitate online instruction, mm-hmm. kind of from a learning capacity and from a lot of other practical perspectives. So Click Gospel really is seeking to do that for churches and other organizations. So I think about a fellow named Louis Giglio. So very well known, but getting older, right? So he's looking a way to, to record and to, you know, his, his legacy live on and to record content and keep content, but in a, in a way that the platform provides a certain level of instructional quality, right? So you're able to smartly lead a learner through a uh, a way that is appropriate. And the same thing with, uh, with the navigators organization in, in South Africa, they are still emailing PDFs around to train missionaries. So there's just lots of, there's lots of ways that we can help organizations kind of scale learning and improve the learning experience and just better learning in a lot of ways and a lot of low-hanging fruit to help share the gospel around the world so wow
0: so is this something outside of ingram outside of Thrive? yep
1: okay. yeah so we have sort of um, side venture yeah so we, it's funny you know, we built this minimum vial product and it, it limited on features but really meets this scenario that I just described really well mm-hmm. right not doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles not super feature-rich like our other enterprise product is but really just a great online learning experience mm-hmm. so ingram let us license that to click gospel so we are licensing that that they already bought it, right? But I built it in in a way that it would serve churches all along. You know, we we're very intentional about that. Oh, okay. And and they're kind enough to license it back to uh, Click Gospel. So
0: you're not having to build. Click Gospel is not a repeat of Thrivest, right? It's you're not Thrivest and. Sort yep. Of white so it's like.
1: basically con- continuing that gospel vision we had from the beginning. So I that's see. what I was saying. It's just the amount of time, and yeah. So basically. Ingram paid for our gospel vision. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. built the piece of software, sure. and we're now licensing it from them to yeah. to start to do this. So. so is
0: the goal with this, is this follow a similar business plan to Thriveus potentially? Or
1: No, I think to me, uh, we, we've made it a nonprofit. Okay. So it really is no exit in mind. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, the bigger, the better, the more organizations, gospel-minded organizations we can serve, the better kind of leveraging our capital and our resources to again, maintain that original vision we had mm-hmm. with sharing the gospel online with Thrivest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the structure. Anyway. Wonderful. <laughs> but early. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> talk yeah. to me in a couple weeks. my <laughs> are, are any churches currently using it? So Emmanuel is going to be one of the first ones. Okay. Um, and we've had interest from several others. So like okay. I said, very early. So we will probably do like a pilot phase okay. with them. Okay. So you might be in one of the online courses. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. I can't wait. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but anyway, so that's, uh, it'll, be, it'll be fun to see what the Lord does with that.
0: Yeah. Boy, there's there's so many different directions we could go here, but we have to wrap it up pretty pretty quick. I want to ask you two questions. So your wife gave me some inside intel this oh, morning, oh, which, is, no. which is really helpful. Okay, good. So she said, and when he is passionate about something, dot dot dot, watch out. <laughs> 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 so what? I'm, I'm curious. Uh, the question is twofold. What are you passionate about now? And you might have, we might have already talked about it. But I'm curious what you're passionate about now. And then secondly, I'm curious what makes her say that it's probably part of your DNA and I think I can relate to it, but what are the characteristics that make you latch onto something uh, when you are passionate about it? I'm going to hear more about that.
1: Sure. So I think she's probably referring to that I'm a real doer, right? And okay. I think you probably are too. So a lot of people are thinkers, right? And kind mm-hmm. of think through scenarios, but are not really good at execution. So I really enjoy doing and, and executing. So and I'll I try to do it relentlessly. I'm not sure mm-hmm. I she probably is uh, exaggerating there. <laughs> but so I think uh, yeah just just being a doer willing to get your hands dirty and just dive in mm-hmm. I think is really key to success. I mean mm-hmm. showing up and like just executing and doing it, I think mm-hmm. is really important. So for for Thrivest, I mean there was maybe it's a good example. Tons of obstacles, right? So K12 is a long sales cycle. It's a public Entity anyway, you're dealing with public government. so it's, there's lots of ops. You know, so mm-hmm. just being relentless is is a must. Any for any startup, really, for any for any business uh, leader, and I think just not taking no for an answer and mm-hmm. and not assuming that you can't do it, or you, when you're mm-hmm. told you can't do it, that it's actually a reality. So mm-hmm. maybe that's what she's referring to. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. So the follow up question is, what are you passionate about now?
1: Yeah. So I think you know we've been. You know, Emmanuel's been and Ray Ortland uh, at our church has been really influential in impacting me and how I think about. Again, a big idea guy, right? Really enjoy big things, so sharing the gospel online, which I think is not being done all that well right now, is super exciting to me. So again, it goes back to Click Gospel and kind of what we're trying to accomplish there, but lots of other opportunities to drive people to the gospel, whether that's driving them from Facebook or driving them to from an ad, you know. To a gospel message, you know that it has that is rooted in sound theology. You know that you know good sound Reformed theology. So, to me, that's what I'm passionate about right now. Mm-hmm. Like, there's actually a Guinness quote who talks about. I'm not gonna be able to quote the whole thing, but it's a it's an awesome quote. But he basically asks, "Where where are the buccaneers for Christ? Right? Mm-hmm. Who who are those pioneers who are willing to put it all on the line mm-hmm. and just go? Right? Mm-hmm. Don't worry about yourself. Don't worry about well being, but." For the sake of the gospel, go put it online. You know, Ray talks about leaving it all in the field, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of concept. So, that whenever he preaches those sermons, it gets me all fired up. Yeah, <laughs> so, <like that. laughs> uh, I, so I want to be a buccaneer for Christ, yes. to, to quote Guinness. And that is squarely where my passion is right now. And uh, mm. so, I, we, Shane and I talk about, you know, at some point leaving Thrivest and some you know, or or whatever capacity, Mm -hmm. retiring to do that, you know. Mm -hmm. So the goal for us is retiring in our 40s to go do that. Mm -hmm. And literally 100% of our time is focused on sharing the gospel in a skill set that the Lord has kind of developed in us and the learning space. How
0: would you see that potentially playing out? You're saying here in the learning space or you're saying abroad or you're not sure?
1: Yeah, I think globally. So you think about an organization like the Navigators who have a global presence. They are a missionary organization, you know, and they have a phenomenal story and history. But helping organizations like that scale learning internally and share their message their their niche right mm-hmm. so their niche is different than louis, louis giglio's niche right mm-hmm. but they have found that niche helping them share the gospel to their niche online i think is super interesting
0: yeah so. i have a listener question i want to ask you it's a common question but considering it's you i do want to ask you it. what is the most important <coughs> thing you would tell yourself if you could go back in in time 10 years say
1: wow well, 10 years um Oh, boy. Um, probably fly blessed by the seat of your pants, <laughs> probably. Mm-hmm. I tend to not not be thoughtful, but I tend to just go. Mm-hmm. So I think introducing thoughtfulness mm-hmm. and planning is mm-hmm. probably a, <laughs> a good rule of thumb, yeah. and I probably would have benefited from, from some of that. Um, okay. You think about risk-taking. You know, us Trump entrepreneurs tend to be risk-takers, but yeah. I tend to probably take more risks than Necessary. So, being more okay. planful and thoughtful might de-risk some of my <laughs> scenarios that yeah. that I've played out.
0: Have you found yourself growing in that in the last ten years?
1: Yeah, no, I think so. And I mean, Thriveus taught me. So, I mean, you grow up so fast when you mm-hmm. when you venture like that. So, Thrivas has really taught me an awful lot about so many things, and professionally, personally, a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. I've just grown yeah. from that experience. At the end of it, feel really confident about starting other ventures. So mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, that was the training wheels for, you know, a gospel type organization that we can do it more, do it more thoughtfully, more planfully mm-hmm. and smartly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that. It's fantastic advice. And 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 I have found myself the same. And then Sometimes you get in your head, and you and, and then you wonder
1: if you're being too thoughtful, yeah, if you're over- <laughs>
0: overthinking it. That's
1: true. <laughs> you know, I so, rarely do that. But,
0: <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. oh, okay.
1: Uh, uh, but yeah, I probably should. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weakness.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I do like taking action, um, but I do like to think things through. And if it's if you're on the back deck and it's you're having a cigar and you know, and I do enjoy thinking things through. Also, you know, sometimes. But so yeah, just playing that balance between. Yeah. Life you know, is about it through long enough. Now we take action. Yes. And,
1: balance is key. So yeah. I think introducing balance is so important for me personally. Like, you know, if you, if you can have true balance, it, it really helps you as a person, as a business person mm-hmm. as well.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we need to wrap this up for the sake of time. So is there any piece of advice or anything you'd want like to say to the listeners, which are other business owners and leaders like yourself?
1: I think staying humble is always a good idea. Not assuming you have all the answers, I think is, is great. Approaching your venture with a degree of humility, I think is great. And I take a page out of the leadership book of President Bush, just being intent on serving others, putting others before yourself, I think is a really great way to to do a business or to do a venture. Mm-hmm. So that would be my piece.
0: Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate yeah. your time. Thanks right for having you? me. Have course. yeah.
1: yeah.